0: You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Acts chapter three. We're finally out of Acts chapter two. That was a lot of fun. More fun to come now, Acts three. Well, from the earliest moments of man's history, there have been many groups, there have been many religions, there have been many empires that have been associated with the dream of worldwide conquest, worldwide domination, global supremacy. But what may surprise some people is that there is no group, there is no people, there is no man that has made more radical claims to global supremacy than Jesus Christ. There are many men and, and, and many empires that have had visions of worldwide kingdoms, but they've all failed. Sooner or later, everyone's plans of global expansion collapses and are replaced by the next upstart group, and they eventually fail. But Jesus, that's a different story. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was in his time the most powerful man on the planet a world empire. Uh, he, he had designs for uh, expanding that empire. And this great king had a dream where he saw a gigantic, beautifully brilliant statue made of different metals from the top of the head all the way down to the toes. And it turned out that uh, that head represented Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian kingdom, and the subsequent metals represented later kingdoms who would come and supplant the kingdoms before them. And at the end of the dream, a small stone falls from heaven and strikes the statue on the feet and completely shatters it. It collapses into a thousand pieces, and the wind comes and scatters those pieces, so there is no more trace of that statue. But the stone that at first seemed small, at first it seemed insignificant, it it grows and it expands, and it becomes a mountain, and it it keeps growing until it fills the whole earth. And Daniel gives to Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of that dream, and he says in Daniel 2.44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdoms be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Now, that, that ancient prophecy has everything to do with what we are seeing in the book of Acts. In the days of those kings, Jesus Christ, born in the little town of Bethlehem, raised in the small, insignificant, despised village of Nazareth, this Jesus comes to earth and he begins his public ministry by announcing that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He says later on that the kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed, starts out small, Seems very insignificant, but in time, like that rock in Daniel chapter 2, it starts to expand and it grows and it becomes a tree larger than anything else in that garden. The advent of Jesus Christ marked the beginnings of the invasion of the kingdom of God into the world. His beginning seemed small and insignificant, and it seemed like that his kingdom came to a swift end when he was crucified. But that just turned out to be step two in his kingdom conquest. He went to the cross on purpose to save his people from their sins. He, he died so that they might not suffer eternal death. And he rose from the grave so that they might enjoy eternal life, both now and in the life to come beyond the grave, so that his people might dwell forever in a kingdom superior to the kingdoms of this world, a kingdom with no more sorrow or suffering or sickness or death. And so the book of Acts begins with Luke telling us that in his first book, which we know is the Gospel of Luke, he says in his first book he wrote about the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Implication? That Jesus is continuing to do and teach. What Jesus did before the cross was only the beginning. Jesus isn't dead. Jesus is alive. Jesus' kingdom work has only just started. And so we find Jesus resurrected and full of power, standing before his disciples in Acts 1.8, and he designates them as heralds of the kingdom. They're to announce the gospel of the kingdom, starting there in Jerusalem, but then expanding to the ends of the earth. Like that, like that little stone in Daniel chapter 2, like that little mustard seed, the gospel of the kingdom will grow and expand and change lives and save souls and conquer hearts to the ends of the earth. And in Acts chapter 2, the multi-ethnic, multicultural thrust of their mission The international makeup of the coming kingdom is seen when Jesus, from his throne in heaven, pours out his Holy Spirit upon the disciples and he enables them to speak in foreign tongues. They're preaching the the good news to foreigners who have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. They're hearing the gospel of the kingdom in their own languages. Uh, They're hearing the message that if they would return from their sins and trust in Jesus, that they too will be saved and enfolded into God's kingdom and God's people, and 3,000 people end up believing and the church is born. And we ended last week wrapping up Acts chapter 2, where we saw a glimpse of life in this new kingdom community. Uh, They were devoted to the apostles' teaching uh, to praying, to taking the Lord's Supper together, to gathering together, to meet for worship and fellowship in large groups and in small groups and meeting in one another's uh, homes and, and meeting one another's needs and sharing their possession. And they were devoted to evangelism, to the spreading of the gospel of the kingdom. And so the, and so the, the kingdom conquest is beginning. Now in Acts 2, we've been, we've been looking at things from a large 50,000 foot view, We've been looking at thousands of people, and we've been reading Peter's grand sweeping sermon that talks about the coming kingdom in grand cosmic terms, the sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood, the great and magnificent day of the Lord, and the message that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But what I love about this first part of Acts chapter 3 is that we get a shift in the camera angle, so to speak. Acts 2 gave us the big, wide angle, but now the camera's going to zoom in and get real personal. Now, last week, I emphasized how Christianity is not a private, individualistic religion, but a public, community-oriented faith because God is not just saving persons. He's saving a people and binding them together into a family. On the other hand... God does not lose the individual trees for the sake of the forest. God does care about individuals. Every person in his kingdom is their own person. There is no one who is a nameless, faceless person. God knows and loves and cares about each of his people personally. Uh, He knows their needs and he knows their struggles and he knows their hurts. He knows their name. And he's come not just to save people but individual unique persons that he loves very much. Uh, The coming kingdom is not just relevant on a macro cosmic scale. The implications of this all trickle down to everyday ordinary people like you and people like me. So now with that said, let's see more of the acts of the risen Lord on a more personal level. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence. For the reading of the words of our great and glorious God, we, we, we stand up to remind ourselves that this word that we are hearing uh, is, not, is not fables, not fairy tales. It carries weight and it carries power and authority, the same kind of authority if the, as if the Lord Jesus Christ were standing here in the flesh speaking these words to you. We're in Acts chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 1 and read on down through verse 10. Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, He stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy and inspired word. I pray that you would bless the The reading and the preaching and the hearing of your word this morning so that we might know what the Spirit has to say to Harbin's church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, there are three major things I want us to consider in our text today, and our text opens with the apostles on mission. The apostles on mission. Verse 1 says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer the ninth hour. Now, in Jewish reckoning, the ninth hour was 3 p.m. There were three customary times of prayer in Jewish religious life. The first was the morning prayers, which took place in the temple area while the sacrifices were being offered. There were also prayers to close out the day at 6 p.m., and no sacrifices were offered during that time. And then then there's this time, the ninth hour, 3 p.m., where prayers and sacrifices would have been offered as well. And as a matter of fact, it was one of the busier times in the temple. Many people would have been present. And it is at this time that Peter and John decide to visit the temple themselves. Now, the fact that they're going to the temple may cause some folks to raise some eyebrows. What's this? (laughs) Jesus has come. A new age is here. Uh, the temple sacrifices are obsolete because Jesus, the Lamb of, 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 of God, has, uh, the, uh, who's died for the sins of the world, he's come and he's, he's paid the price for sin. So, so why would Peter and why would John be at the temple? Well, I don't think they're there to offer a sacrifice. I do think Luke's mention of the hour of prayer suggests that they intend to pray. Uh, I don't see that as problematic at all. Remember, in the last chapter, we're we're told that these first Christians met regularly at the temple for prayer and Bible teaching and worship. Let's remember that, yes, Peter and John are Christians, but they're Jews. And there is a daily rhythm of Jewish religious life that they've been accustomed to from birth, and that would include these times of prayer. Let's also remember that the book of Acts is an important time of transition, The new covenant is dawned. The ways of the old covenant were fading, but they had not entirely faded. The temple was still standing. Uh, Many were still engaged in the ritual sacrifices because they simply did not yet know what the advent of Christ actually meant. And even in the Christian community, which started out as entirely Jewish, uh, even the Christian community was, was still slowly grasping and grappling with all of the implications and ramifications of the new covenant. Uh, later, later on, we're going to see the early church wrestling with the, the reality that all of these Gentiles are now pouring in to the people of God. What in the world do we do about that? When we get to Acts 10, we're going to discover that even the apostle Peter had still been strictly observing the Old Testament dietary laws. Not eating the the unclean foods. So everything associated with Old Testament Judaism didn't immediately disappear after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And the book of Acts, very important to realize this, the book of Acts takes place during this very fascinating time in redemptive history that is best described by the author of Hebrews, who says in Hebrews 1.8 that the new covenant has made the first one obsolete and what's becoming obsolete is growing old And it's ready to vanish away. And when 70 AD comes and the Romans destroy that temple, not leaving one stone left upon another, it's going to be the final sign that indeed that old system is obsolete and has vanished. But be that as it may, Peter and John coming to the temple to pray is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I have a sneaking suspicion that they aren't just coming to pray. And, and a clue for me is that you have a, you have a pair of disciples, Peter and John. And they've not gone out individually, they have gone out together. And from the earliest days of Jesus training his disciples, he established a pattern for missions where he sent out his disciples two by two in pairs for evangelistic ministry. We, we can read about that in Mark chapter 6 verse 7. Also contextually, let's, let's remember that in the prior verse, Acts 2:47, we get a description of the growing church community. It says, day by day, the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved." And as we uh, considered last week, the only way that that could even happen was through evangelism. The early church was zealously telling people in Jerusalem about Jesus, which is why so many people are getting saved. They're, they're a witnessing community. And, and and then immediately after Luke tells us that in Acts two forty seven, I think we get an example of that in Acts three one, where Peter and John are, are going out on mission to the temple, not to sacrifice, but to tell people that the one true sacrifice has already come in the person of Jesus. As John Calvin wrote, they went there that they might have better opportunity to spread abroad the gospel. Uh, likewise, 17th century theologian Matthew Poole wrote that they went up to the, together into the temple that they might have a larger field to sow the seed of the gospel into. Maybe why Peter and John uh, went to the temple at 3 p.m. It, it's the busier time of the day so, so that they might have more people to share the gospel with. They're looking for people to, to talk to about Jesus. They had their pockets stuffed full of gospel tracts and they're ready to go. Not literally, of course. There was no printing press, but but if there was, they they would have been. Let's remember that any church will begin to to take on the characteristics of its leaders. And if the church was indeed a vigorously evangelizing church, then surely that reflects on the practice of the church's leaders. Peter and John surely were leading the way and the church's witness in the community and members of the church were following suits. Finally, I think that Peter and John were mission-minded because immediately after this man is healed, Peter is going to launch into an evangelistic sermon. Uh, We're going to look at that next week. But there's no hesitancy in Peter. There's no coyness here. It's as if he already has things on his mind and in his heart that he wants to say, and the healing of this beggar provides the platform for him to immediately share it. Peter and John were men on a mission, always looking for opportunities, always looking for moments to share a gospel word. Reminds me of what um, Paul wrote to Timothy when he told him to preach the word. In season, not of season. When it's convenient, when it's inconvenient. No matter where, no matter when, just, just be ready. Be ready to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom when the opportunity arrives. And let me say as a general rule of thumb, friends, if you are sincerely looking for and praying for opportunities, they will come. They will come. I've seen direct answers to prayer uh, in regards to this. I'll be feeling maybe a little evangelistically dry, realize I haven't been sharing Jesus as much lately. I then pray and, 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 and then I keep my eyes open with, with my gospel antennas up. And lo and behold, it's not too long when God answers my prayer and I find myself in a conversation telling somebody about Jesus. I probably need to do that more. Are, are you mission-minded Harbin's? Are you like Peter and John, deliberately putting yourselves in situations where you can open your mouth for Jesus Christ when you go to work, when you go to school, when you go for a walk in the neighborhood? Are you intentionally and consciously looking for opportunities to witness? If if, if you're not, if you're just kind of floating through life, kind of just doing your own thing and going to work, going to school, coming home, watching TV, sleep, wake up, repeat... If that's your life, you won't be evangelizing and sharing Jesus very much. Well, we see the apostles, they're on mission. But next, we are confronted with the beggar's sad condition. The beggar's sad condition. Verse 2, And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gates of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Luke says he was lame from birth. It's a serious condition. It would be in any day, but in the first century, it was about as hopeless as it could be. It would be a virtual death sentence, or at least a sentence to a lifetime of poverty. Already an economic drain on his family, he would have also been seen as a drain on society. Now, often in the pagan Roman world, such people were immediately killed after birth, but in the Jewish world, such killing was forbidden. But it was enormously difficult for a family to care for such a person, which is why we see that this man is here and he's been here every day for a long time and he's, he's carried, probably by close relatives, he's carried to, this, to the temple and they just sit him there to beg for money. And he did it for decades because the next chapter is going to tell us that this man is over 40 years old. What's more, some would have shunned him People with disabilities were looked down upon and seen as, as morally and spiritually inferior. It would have been believed by many that God was punishing that person and, and that's why he's suffering. You actually see that attitude in John 9 where Jesus' disciples asked, ask him about a man who had been born blind. And they asked, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus has to correct their faulty thinking. Extreme suffering and, and physical disabilities does not automatically mean that it's that person's fault. You just can't automatically connect the dots that way, and yet many did. And so day after day, this man sits there, stigmatized and shunned and absolutely destitute and helpless and hopeless, waiting for somebody to give him a, a few coins just so he can eat tonight. Tonight. So, so he, can, he can get a little bit of relief in his tragic life. It's the very best that he can hope for. He's sitting at the temple because, because people are, who are going to the temple are religiously minded. And so there, there's, a, there's a better chance, a better opportunity for him to get some, some financial help. Now, Luke in verse 4 gives us a very interesting detail. Very interesting detail. Why, why, does, he, why does he give us these details? I know he's a historian, but... He's also under the inspiration of the Spirit. This is important. It says that Peter directed his gaze at him. How many people do you think actually paid very close attention to this beggar? How many times have you been in a situation where you are out and about, and there's a homeless person? Obviously destitute, obviously struggling. They're asking for money. What's typically our natural reaction in that moment? Be honest now. Do you look them in the eye? Probably most of us don't, right? We tend to look the other way. Uh, we pretend we don't see the person. We, we don't even acknowledge the person. And there could be a whole host of reasons that we might do that. But don't think that it was any different back then. This man would have been largely ignored, even by those who threw a few shekels his way. No, Nobody would have paid much attention to him. Nobody would have gazed at him. Most people's gaze was probably transfixed on the temple gate. Verse 2 calls it the beautiful gate. And it was an amazing sight to behold. Historian Josephus tells us it was 75 feet high, 60 feet wide, overlaid with imported Corinthian bronze. And it was such a work of art that according to Josephus, it far exceeded in value those plated with silver set in gold. What a contrast, what an ironic contrast. You have this absolutely destitute and poverty-stricken man sitting by this incredibly opulent, beautiful gate. And you can imagine almost everyone just having their gaze fixed on this incredible work of art, looking at the beautiful gate as opposed to this beautiful man who so desperately needed help. And it's so wonderful how Peter and John treat this man like a human being. I think this beggar was was shocked by Peter and John just like staring at him, fixing their gaze on him. That's why Peter has to tell him, Look at us. This beggar was probably so ashamed that he could just barely look people in the eye. Brothers and sisters, we live in a day and age where we as a church, we as believers, are very preoccupied with how we are being treated by the culture, by the government. We worry about the erosion of religious liberty, of being treated as an enemy of the state because of what we believe, and those are valid concerns. But as we wrestle with how we are being treated, we also need to wrestle with how we treat others, especially those who are considered the least in our society. Yes, we advocate much for the unborn here at Harbin's Church, and let's keep doing that, but sometimes it's easier to do that than it is to look at and engage with and love that homeless person on the street. Or that person who was labeled, who's been labeled with a mental illness. Or the elderly who's been forgotten by their own family. Or that foster child who's in need of love and compassion and a home. Maybe it will be your home. Uh, those whom the world might shun or, or, or look down upon and, and don't have time for. And yet these are beautiful people who have been made in the image of God. Which is why I'm so glad that Jeff's put together those little packets that are in the back right there for the homeless. Those, 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 those blessing bags that, that Paul was talking about. On your way out, grab some of those, put them in your car, and use them as ways to engage with and bless others. Christians should be known for those who love and bless those that everyone else ignores and, and just callously disregards as a drain on society. Peter and John are moved by compassion for this poor beggar. They say, Look at us. And verse five, the man gets hopeful. It says he fixes attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. What do you think he's expecting to receive from them? He's thinking, Wow, they're about to give me a huge gift. He's holding out his cup or his bucket or whatever he has, waiting for that big payoff. If he could just get, get some, some, some more cash, if he could just catch one break, if he could just get a little bit of a, of a windfall, that would be so helpful. That would solve so many problems today. And Peter realizes that uh, this man is waiting for him to write a big check, which is why he says in verse six, I have no silver and gold. Now call me old fashioned, but I like the, the King James version that says, Silver and gold I have none. Some of you are thinking, hey, I just found my life verse. (laughs) (laughs) I know what that's like. Peter says, friend, I don't have any money. I'm as broke as you are. And and you, you can just imagine the air going out of the beggar's balloon, so to speak, in that moment. Oh, seriously? You don't have silver or gold? What's the point of this then? What good are you? Well, Peter is no good for this beggar in and of himself. This is why he responds by saying, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Which leads to the Savior's healing touch. My third point, the Savior's healing touch. Peter gives this crippled man a command to rise up and walk. Now, think about that for a moment. What kind of sense does that make? This guy's been lame for over 40 years. He's never run. He's never walked. He he has to be carried wherever he goes. It's absolutely impossible for him to rise to his feet, yet Peter commands him to do what has been impossible for him to do. John Calvin, in his Acts commentary, writes that this is like mocking someone when you bid a man without feet to go. (laughs) But, Calvin writes also, he believed Peter's words. And what's the result of his faith in Jesus, verse 7? And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. Now, I love how Peter told this man to do something absolutely impossible, to arise and walk. But, but he doesn't then just leave the man to himself. Peter grabs the man by the hand and pulls him up. That's a beautiful illustration, by the way, of how God works. God issues commands, doesn't he? All kinds of commands. Repent, be holy, evangelize, walk in love, rejoice, be content, don't be anxious, impossible commands. But God doesn't leave you to yourself. As you you move to obey him, he takes you by the hand and raises you up as, as he leads you to do everything that he commanded you to do. Reminds me of the... 5th century church father Augustine who struggled big time with lust and sexual purity. And so he prayed a prayer. It's a good prayer. He said, Lord, command what you will and will what you command. Command what you will and will what you command. Yes, Lord, command what you will. Command me to be holy. Command me to be pure. But, but when, you, when you do that, God, just don't leave me hanging. As I seek to do your will, help me to actually do it. Give me the power and the strength to obey you. Reminds me of Philippians 2 where Paul says, work out your own salvation. In other words, we aren't to be passive. We are to obey the commands. We are to do things. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As you are in the process of doing, God is doing in you. Well, Peter commands this man to stand and he pulls the man to his feet in verse 7 says that immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Scholars have noted how Luke writes about this healing in the Greek reflects medical terminology. Remember, Luke is not just a historian. He is a doctor. Does that make sense? And the way he writes about this shows an interest in the physiology and the mechanics of the healing. You can almost imagine Luke as he he was doing research for the book of Acts, going back to interview the the beggar and asking him, okay, can you tell me exactly what was going on inside of you as you were standing up? Can I see the x-rays? But regardless of whatever professional medical interest Luke has in the healings, he knows this is not natural, but supernatural power that has done this. In fact, that's Peter's point later on in the chapter where he says in verse 16, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Trust in Jesus has given this man not just new legs, but a new life. Just a few minutes before, he was living under a virtual death sentence and the power of Jesus has brought renewal and restoration and it has brought joy. Verse 8 says, leaping up, he, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. You can imagine what a spectacle this is. All of these religious and super pious people are there for prayer and they're, they're, they're there somber and serious and suddenly there's this guy hooting and hollering and leaping around the temple and praising God at the top of his lungs. He's filled with joy. He couldn't care less what anyone else thinks. Now, this miracle of healing is not an end unto itself. The miracles of Jesus never are. They aren't random, they aren't arbitrary. They aren't they aren't given indiscriminately to everyone. Not everyone in Jerusalem received this kind of healing. But the miracles of Jesus are always strategic, and they always point to something beyond itself. We'll talk more about that next week because the miracle actually sets up a message, a a sermon from Peter in the second half of chapter 3, where we're going to discover that the point of this healing is that it is a sign that the kingdom of Christ has come and Jesus is restoring that which is fallen and lame and ruined. You see, while the, the first century Jews were wrong to automatically connect someone's suffering with someone's personal sin they were wrong to to say he's blind, obviously, because he sinned. That that beggar is poor and lame, obviously, because he sinned. They They were wrong to say that. But on the other hand, on another level, suffering has everything to do with sin. Ages ago in the Garden of Eden, the first man and the first woman were put in a glorious and perfect world with no suffering, there were, with no blind people, no, no one lame, no one poor, nobody is begging there. It's a wonderful kingdom. And the first man, Adam, ruined it with his sin he thought he could be a better king than God. He he thought that he could rule the world apart from God. And when he rebelled against God, that perfect world came crashing down. It, it became poisoned and fallen and lame and ruined. Adam's sin brought a curse into the world, and the once good world uh, became a world full of suffering and sickness and death. And Adam and all of his posterity became corrupted by sin. Adam became evil, and like father, like son, like father, like daughter, we followed in his footsteps. Continuing to believe the lie. Uh, to believe the lie that we can rule the world and rule our own lives detached from the God of life. And the outward suffering, the diseases, the blindness, the lameness, all of those are just symptoms and reflections of a greater malady in the heart of man. Uh, the, The outward brokenness is a sign of a deeper, more significant inward brokenness that we all share. It's not just that our our bodies are corrupt and subject to death, but our very spirits are dead already. Hating God and hating one another, slaves to sin, selfishly fighting for our own personal kingdom, foolishly thinking that it's a war that we can win. But God says the wages of sin is death. And the final penalty for our sin is being eternally cut off from the enjoyment of God's presence in hell. But the gospel tells us that there is hope for the hopeless, that the kingdom that man ruined is being reclaimed by Jesus Christ. Messiah has come. And as Peter grabs that formerly crippled man's hand and pulls him to his feet, it's a sign that Jesus is restoring the world order and fixing that which is broken in the world. And all who believe in Jesus can participate and partake of that restoration as well. And the most important thing that Jesus has come to fix is man's dead heart. You do understand, I hope, that the very best thing that that beggar got that day was not fresh legs. You do realize that, don't you? The very best thing that, that the beggar got that day was Jesus Christ. Who cares if you're healed and then you die and go to hell? Strong legs can't fix a dead heart. The thing he needed the most was for a new life to be breathed into his dead, God-hating, sinful heart so that he might love Jesus and receive him by faith and receive forgiveness from sin so that he might escape from a, from a suffering, an eternal suffering, far worse than being a cripple in first century Jerusalem, and so that he might instead love and enjoy Jesus for the remainder of his life and then enjoy them all the more forever in the life to come. And, and, and once our souls, once our spirits have received new life, guess what? That guarantees healing and life for our whole bodies. Some of you are like, wait a minute. Deemer, are, are, you, are you saying that you believe that physical healing is guaranteed in the atonement of Jesus? Absolutely. But none of us experience that in its fullness now. Even that beggar grew old, got weak again, and died. Even the resurrected Lazarus died again. Even if you today pray for healing and Jesus has mercy and that that healing comes, guess what? It's only temporary. But these moments of healing our foretastes and previews of much better things to come. Because we, we live in between the already and the not yet. The kingdom's already come in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why people are being saved from sin. That's why lives are being changed and transformed. That's why the Holy Spirit is breathing new life into people all over the world. The kingdom is already here. But the kingdom is not yet fully consummated. So we do not yet see everything promised right now. But we are given glimpses of it to remind us that it's coming. It's coming. What that beggar experienced in Acts chapter 3 was a partial fulfillment of Isaiah 35, which looks forward to the full restoration of the kingdom of Christ in this world. There is coming a day, Isaiah prophesied, when the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. Dennis Johnson writes that this healing may be thought of both as an x-ray and as a preview. As an x-ray in that it makes visible to outside observers the unseen inner cure that faith in Jesus produces. Astonishing astonishing as it is for a man of 40 who's never been able to walk, to leap in the temple, the cure of hearts paralyzed in sin is even greater. Johnson goes on to write, this is also as a preview. As, as a preview, it shows the final completion of Jesus' restorative work when believers' physical bodies will fully experience salvation, which we already have a taste of in the form of first fruits. Astonishing as it is for a lame man to leap, it's nothing compared to the cosmic restoration to come. The restoration of all things. So, a couple final points of Application before we're done. First, if you're here this morning as a believer, especially a physically suffering believer, let the story of this beggar remind you that a better day is coming. Your suffering is not the end of the story. Remember that the most important part of you, uh, uh, your very soul, your very heart, has been healed by Jesus. He has changed you on the inside. You aren't perfect, but as the scriptures say, though, outwardly, physically, we are wasting away. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. And let that inner change be a reminder that one day that weak and broken exterior, your very body, will likewise be changed when Jesus calls you forth from the grave and that body of yours that is weak and broken will one day leap like a deer and you will sing for joy. Second, I want you to remember those words of Peter silver and gold I have none. Friend, there's a message in that, that even if you have small resources, you have a very big gospel. And in fact, you have the very best gift to give to a person in need, which is the gospel of the kingdom. Is there anything better that you can do for somebody than to introduce them to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there a greater gift? Is there a greater help? Is there a greater service? I, I, I'm not saying that you don't try to meet people's needs in other ways, you should. Uh, but there's a reason why those little blessing bags in the back for the homeless don't just have some supplies to, to, to help for the next couple of days. They have gospel tracts in them. There's something more that people need. So never forget that, that regardless of what you have or don't have to offer, what you do have, which is the gospel, if you give that away, you can change somebody's life forever. You can. R- remember, the only reason you're here this morning as a Christian It's because you heard the gospel from somebody else. That's how it works. Finally, if you're here as an unbeliever, you aren't listening to this message by accident this morning. You're not here by accident. You're not watching via video by accident. God wanted you to hear this message. He wants you to know that your biggest need is not what you thought that it was. That beggar thought that what he needed the most was money, and I'm sure he was initially disappointed when Peter said, sorry, I've got no money. But in the end, what he did get was far, far better. The things that you think that you need out of life are not your biggest need. Jesus Christ is your biggest need, and he has come to fix, raise up, and restore that which is fallen and broken. And the most broken thing about you is your soul. And deep down, you know that. Your biggest problem is sin. And your biggest need is forgiveness and restoration in your relationship with God. The good news for you is that Jesus paid the ransom price for sinners. So that if you would but repent from your sins and believe in him, you'll experience healing in your soul and a peace that you've never known. God has commanded you today to repent and believe the gospel. Call on him today. Ask him to command what he wills and then to will what he commands in your life, in your heart today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of the name of Jesus, the name above all names. Father, right now I pray for those of us in this room who are believers that the story of your love and compassion for that beggar would touch and encourage our hearts today. You have the same kind of love for us, the same kind of compassion, the same kind of concern. Father, I pray for those this morning who are in extreme physical need Father, I pray that you would give them a healing touch. But Father, beyond that, I pray that if you would choose not to immediately restore physical strength, that you would give them the power of your all-sufficient grace, that they might experience spiritual strength and spiritual help from you in their weakness, So that God's strength might be made manifest even in their weakness. And Father, would you give those who are suffering the hope that the suffering is not the end of the story. There will come a day where all of God's people will leap like a deer in joy. And we look forward to that day. Father, I pray for any who have heard this message that have been in rebellion against you, willful, stubborn rebellion against you, trying to be king and ruler over their own life, trying to rule their own world. Father, I pray that by your power, the power of the name of Jesus, that you would take hearts that are in rebellion against you and that you would take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh so that they too might experience and enjoy the power, the transforming power of Jesus. It is, a, it is a wonderful thing for a crippled body to be made whole. It is an amazing thing for a dead, sinful, wicked heart to be changed and transformed, loving Jesus. May that happen this day to those who need it. In Jesus' name, amen.